0: We're going to begin in Matthew chapter one today. We're in a series called "Home for Christmas." <clears throat> you know, I noticed something about uh, going home as we were with our my family for Thanksgiving, and I'm sure some of you are going to be hanging out with family over the next several days. Home's a great opportunity to. Uh, to catch up on your history. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You ever sit around the table with family and just start telling stories about, you know, days gone by and talk about the things you did when you were younger and and then you hear the stories from your parents that they weren't willing to tell you when you were a kid, but now that you can handle it, you know, you get the real you get the real truth of their story and your grandparents. And <clears throat> home can be a great opportunity to kind of relive uh the old days and learn a little bit about our history in fact i don't know what it is but there's such an intrigue for this kind of knowledge that you know in the last several years we've seen the rise of websites like ancestry.com any any of those folks here that just love to like you know look into your family's history on the computer and figure out you know who you're related to from the 1700s or something i've never done that before myself i just wondered if anybody was you know here royalty in the house maybe You know, I don't know about you, but there's something that fascinates me when I hear stories about, like, my family and years gone by. It's not the stories that everybody's proud of that I want to hear over and over again. It's those stories that, you know, about that one, like, crazy relative in the family or, you know, something that somebody did that was probably illegal, but they got away, you know, when you live to tell about it. How many of you know those are the fun stories, the ones that get told over and over and over again? Yeah. I don't know why it is, but those are the stories that, that I love to hear. And there's something amazing in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew about the story of Jesus. And, and here's what I know, just up front, I want to just confess this. I know it about me, I, I'm assuming it about you. You don't have to look too far into your family's history to know you didn't come from a perfect home. anybody say amen to that? You didn't come from a perfect home. Come on, I mean, you know it. I know it. Let's just be honest. I mean, every every family has at least one, like, crazy, sketchy relative that just makes you a little nervous. You know, like, oh they're oh they're coming. Okay, you know, you just kind of watch them. You don't know what's going to happen. Come on, you have that relative. If you if you don't have that relative. If you don't have that relative, your family's not being honest with you. I'm going to tell you today, as your pastor, it's you, okay? You, it's you. Everybody, every family, ha- you know, you got, you got them people in your family. I want to read to you today a great chapter. I mean, this is a great chapter of God's Word. It's in Matthew chapter 1. And it's those, it's those characters that make you nervous that make me love this chapter. Look at it with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Okay, how many of y'all got lost already? (laughs) Come on, be honest. How many of you skip this chapter when you read the Christmas story? Can I see a show of hands? Somebody be honest in church today. You know you start at Matthew chapter 2. Right? Or at least down at verse 18. Come on. I said it was a great chapter. I didn't say I love reading it. I mean, if I'm being honest... I skip this a lot of times. When I'm reading the Bible, you know, you're trying to read through the Bible, you get to the genealogies, so-and-so is the father, so-and-so is the father, so-and-so, it gets, it gets long. And I'm going to tell you, the only thing worse than trying to read through a whole list of genealogies is listening to somebody else butcher all the names in the genealogy. So I'm not going to read it all to you, okay? But I do want you to understand, because this really is where I'm preaching from today. Though this might not be leisure reading for us, And this might not look like fire on the page. I want to tell you, the the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is one of the most important documents we have in the Word of God. It's important because this document, these first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel, communicate to us that Jesus is in the bloodline of Abraham. And I'm going to tell you why that's important. Because every Jew that was looking and longing for the Messiah to come knew about the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Let me read it to you. They were all familiar with God saying in verse 18, And through your offspring, Abraham, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Every Jew that was looking for the coming Messiah was expecting that he was going to be a Jewish Messiah. Not only that, this document communicates to us that not only is Jesus in the bloodline of the nation, but he is in the bloodline of David. See, being in the bloodline of Abraham puts him in the nation. Being in the bloodline of David puts him on the throne. And this document communicates to us something that, again, every Jew knew about. Everyone that was waiting for the Messiah knew about the promise, not only to Abraham, but they knew about the promise to David, that's recorded in Second Samuel chapter seven and verse 16. This is what God told David. He said, "Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." So so hear this today. Matthew's goal in writing his gospel was to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if I'm writing a book, I don't start it like this. Now, I haven't written a book, but if I write a book, I can promise you page 1, chapter 1 is not going to begin with a long list of all the people in my family. Nothing against them, but how many of you know that's not compelling literature? If you're writing the story, you wouldn't do it either. But I want you to know today, for Matthew and for this Jewish audience, this makes perfect sense. Because of their expectation of who the Messiah would be, of where he would come from. The more they read that this lineage goes through the line of David all the way back to Father Abraham, there was an expectation and a credibility about who Jesus is and whatever else Matthew might say to Him on the following pages. I want to tell you today, without the genealogy, everything else that Jesus did would have had to have been dismissed by the people who were looking for the son of David and the son of Abraham to come. Now, as you look at this list, there's a lot of impressive names in it. I read a few of them right up top. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I got to tell you, it's not the impressive people on the list that intrigue me I don't it's kind of like in my family you know I mean I like hearing the stories about my wife's grandfather who was a bootlegger like you know maybe some of your grandparents knew her grandfather personally I don't know from here I I liked hearing the stories you know my dad would tell about his uncles they would send him into the bar on a Friday night to be the instigator and then once everybody got riled up the green boys would come in and clean house like you know, those are the, story, the sketchy people. You know, the ones that you just don't quite know about. They're the ones to me that make the story interesting. And they especially grab my attention when you're talking about the family genealogy of the Savior of the world. So I want to I wanna just make a statement here out of the gate. And I hope you'll get this through the course of this message. You don't have to have a perfect home. That's not what matters. What matters is that you are in the family of God. We're going to look at some people here. Now, naturally speaking, none of us could say that we're in the lineage of Jesus, the way that these people are. None of us could say that that biologically we're a part of Jesus' family. But the Bible says in Romans 11 that we who believe have been grafted in. That means we are a part, not because of birthright, but because of salvation. Because of what Jesus did, we're a part of this family. So so Matthew begins this genealogy. He's a testimony about who Jesus is, the Messiah. But I want you to know he's not just the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's a message in the genealogy that communicates that Jesus is the king of grace. He's the king of grace. And the reality of the stories that make it into this record prove it to be so. So we don't have time today to read all through them. And I wouldn't try to pronounce all these names for you anyway. But I do want to talk about a few of them. In fact, I want to tell you about four women, three kings, and two men who are in this record. They lead to one savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And I want you to trace the lines of grace with me in his genealogy this morning. First, let me tell you about these four women. Now, just a little history here. It's strange and unusual that you would even find women in the genealogy. One reason is very natural. Like we do in our culture, when a couple gets married, the woman takes the man's name. It's not the other way around. So, So the genealogy is going to be a list of men's names. But more than that, in in this culture that Matthew's writing in and in the culture that these people lived in, women were always subject to men. They had no legal standing. A a woman was looked at as as more property than person. And so for a woman's name to be listed in a genealogical record is almost unheard of. And yet we look at Matthew chapter 1 and there are four women who are listed here. I'm going to tell you their names It's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women before we ever get to Mary, the mother of Jesus who are listed. Now let me just tell you a little bit about these people in Jesus' family. Bathsheba, all of these are Old Testament characters. Her story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But she's mentioned here in verse 6 of Matthew 1. It says, And Jesse... The father of King David. Now, let me just stop right there because I've already kind of alluded to this, but let me just emphasize for a moment. King David is probably the most significant name in this genealogy. Everyone was looking for the next king who would overthrow uh, a, an evil empire. And Jerusalem wanted to be reestablished, they wanted their own leader, they wanted a king of righteousness. They were looking for someone to fulfill the seat. On the throne of David so he's probably the most important character in the whole list and yet when Matthew writes this record he doesn't talk about King David and his uh, conquest in battle he doesn't talk about King David and the incredible Psalms that that he wrote songs to the Lord he doesn't emphasize the promise that God had given David that his throne would be established forever he doesn't bring up the fact that David's legacy was that he was a man after the heart of God. No, when Matthew writes a story to communicate the, to authenticate Jesus' bloodline, he mentions King David, and look at it with me. He says, Jesse, the father of King David, and here's how he describes the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. For some reason, Matthew chooses to take the darkest day in the life of King David and use that moment as a description. Now, we don't get her name here. We just say that Solomon's mother was Uriah's wife. But those of you that are familiar with your Bible, you know her name was Bathsheba. And her story is found in 2 Samuel 11. Let me read the first two verses for you. It says, In the spring of... At the time when kings go off to war. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and so we meet Bathsheba she's this beautiful woman that David he's supposed to be out it's the spring of the year when kings go off to battle he's the king he's supposed to be out at war but instead he's at home he's taking a late night stroll on the rooftop deck and he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman he sends his messengers out to go and find out who is she they come back and they tell him with no uh Uncertainties. That is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who, by the way, David is well aware, Uriah is off fighting his battle for him. But David says, bring her to me. He takes Bathsheba into his king's chambers and commits adultery with her, sends her back home. She cleanses herself, and a little while later, she sends a message back to the king and says, King, I'm pregnant. So now his wheels are turning. He's got to cover his tracks, and so he calls for Uriah to come home from war, gives him a nice meal, tells him to stay the night at home, and then you can go back tomorrow. Thinking he's going to go home after being away for a long time, he'll lay down with his wife. My my tracks are covered. Nobody'll know it's my kid. We'll move on. All is well. But Uriah is a man of integrity. Instead of going home that night, he sleeps on the porch of the palace king realizes the next morning that Uriah never went home. He said, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you enjoy a night with your wife? And he said, how could I go and enjoy the pleasures of my own home when the Lord's men are out fighting the battle? So David says, okay, I'll tell you what, why don't you come back to dinner with me tonight? So the next night, David provides a big banquet, makes sure that Uriah gets good and soused, you know, and he sends him back home thinking now he's going to go home and sleep with his wife. Only to find out the next morning that Uriah once again slept on the porch. So that morning David has to cover up his failure and so rather than admitting it he writes a letter that is essentially a death sentence for Uriah. Seals it with the king's seal and gives it to Uriah to take to the commander of the army and in the letter it essentially says I want you to advance the troops closer than what is safe. And then I want you to pull back and leave Uriah the Hittite exposed. The archers over the wall shot their arrows. They were too close. Uriah was killed. And the cover up was established. Now we read that story and it's it's a sad story. Especially to know who King David was and, and all that God used him to do. There's something that that stands out to me about Bathsheba being in the genealogy of Christ. The first thing is the fact that of all the women in it, she's the only one that's actually a Jew. All the rest of the women are foreigners. Which again makes it remarkable that they would even make it in to a Jewish lineage. But she's a Jew and if it tells me anything about her and David, there's one thing that we can learn from it and that's this. Even believers, even God's people, can spiral into sin, amen? Even, even good people, even God's people. Can, can mess up. They can blow it. Here's, here's what I know. There are many people that started out 2017, and you made a spiritual and a moral and maybe an ethical commitment that, hey, this is going to be a better year. I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to fall into the same traps I fell into in 2016. But somewhere along the way, in the springtime of the year, when you should have been out fighting battles that God anointed you to win, you allowed yourself to give in to temptation. Somewhere along the path, you allowed yourself to be pulled in and sucked in, and you spiraled into that life of sin. I want to tell you, if this story tells me anything, it ought to tell me, and it ought to tell you, it is not too late to make it right. It's not too late. The legacy of David is not that he stole Uriah's wife and had him murdered. The legacy of David is that he was a man after the heart of God. Why is that? Because the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, it says, For though the righteous man fall seven times, they rise again. Can I tell you today, the tale of your life is not going to be how many times you fell. It's going to be how many times you got back up. And there's a story of redemption here in the life of Bathsheba. Let me tell you about the next lady. Her name's Ruth. Now Ruth has a whole book in the Old Testament that's by her name. It's a beautiful story of redemption. Let me just give you the snapshot version. It starts with a man named Elimelech. He and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they live in Bethlehem. Ironically, that's the same town that Jesus is going to be born in. In the New Testament. Even more ironic, Bethlehem means house of bread. When Jesus came, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. But in Elimelech's day, there was a famine. No bread in the house of bread. And so he and Naomi and their two sons, they leave for a place called Moab. And when they get there, Elimelech dies. So, Naomi's there with her two sons and she finds two lovely Moabite women to marry them. But within a ten year span, both of her sons die too. So now you have Naomi. She's got her two daughters-in-law. She's living in a foreign land. She's got no hope for the future. Nobody carry on her name. Her sons never had sons. So she looks at those two young ladies and she says, look, you just need to cut your losses Go find you some new Moabite husbands and move on with your life. Just leave me. I've got nothing to offer you. One of the daughters took her advice. The other one was named Ruth. Ruth makes a decision in that moment to do something that becomes the the pivot point of the rest of her story. There was something that Ruth saw in her in-laws. There was something that she saw in the people of God, even though she only knew one family, that she never saw living in Moab. And so she makes this incredible statement in Ruth chapter 1, just one verse. Verse 16, as, as Naomi's trying to convince her to just start over, don't, don't stay with me, stay with your own people, Ruth says these words. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In that moment, Ruth made a personal decision to to hitch her hopes to the God of Israel. And so here they are, Naomi and Ruth, one older, one younger, but both widows and both broke. And they come rolling back into Bethlehem. And all the old neighbors say, hey, there's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter because God's taken everything from me. But Ruth never lost her joy. And pretty soon, young Ruth catches the attention of a young man named Boaz, who happens to be quite wealthy. Boaz marries Ruth and before long, they have a baby. And now Naomi, who had left and said, call me bitter. I've got no husband, I've got no sons, I've got no future hope. My family line has died in a foreign country. Now she finds herself holding a baby in Bethlehem. A baby that would carry her name on and because of that grandbaby she would end up having a great, great grandson named David who would sit on the throne in Israel. It's a powerful story. You know, when you look at Ruth's life there's nothing to her story that that would be blemish on her record. I mean, she's pretty impeccable. A great role model for any young woman to follow is the life of Ruth. But there was one thing. There was one thing that really, according to the letter of the law, would disqualify her name from being found in Matthew chapter 1. And that's this. She was a Moabite. And and the Bible says very clearly in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, no Moabite Or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Not even in the 10th generation. Here's the lesson in Ruth's life. That even good people. Even moral people need a savior. Listen. The same way that the law condemned Ruth and kept her out of of the assembly of the Lord, the Bible says, You and I are condemned by the law. The Bible's very clear. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of. Of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Did you know the, the Bible says if you've broken one commandment, it's as if you've broken them all? All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of God's standard. And, and the wages of sin is death. Can I just tell you today? Morality and ethics can't save you, they can't save you. Only grace can write your name in the family of God. Only grace can. There's a lot of people that they, they hesitate to surrender their life to Jesus because they don't see the need of a savior. It's like trying to rescue somebody out of the deep end of a pool that doesn't know they're drowning. And they look at their life and they say, you know what, I got things together. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an, an upstanding person, I'm a decent contributor to my society, I, I pay my taxes, I give to good causes, I'm a good spouse, I'm a good parent. And I see a lot of Christians that, man, their life's way more messed up than mine. What do I need that for? Ruth had all those things going for her, but the law condemned her. Grace alone writes us into the story of God's family. Can you just imagine what it would be like if, you, if you're Ruth? You're, you're sitting around the table now with your new family. You grew up in Moab. Now, now you're, you're with the Jews. You're sitting with your husband, Boaz. And... You're just admiring everything, and you say, wow, wow, honey, you have such a wonderful family. I mean, your family's so amazing. And then Boaz starts telling the stories, you know, that come out around the holidays. He says, yeah, yeah, hasn't always been that way, though, you know. Did I ever tell you my mom used to be a prostitute? Like, "Eh, stop the tape. What? Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. Look at it with me. In Matthew, we see the story. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. Have you ever felt like you were in a situation where you were just stuck? Like you just couldn't, you couldn't move forward. There's really no way, no way out. Like you just, like there was walls all around you. You ever been there? I can't think of a character in the Bible that epitomizes that feeling, that reality, more than Rahab. I mean, quite literally, she had walls all around her. She lived in a town called Jericho. And she, her house was built in the wall of the city. So what's happening in Joshua 2 is God is about to give His children, the Israelites, their promised land. And there's one thing standing in their way. It's this city called Jericho. And so the leader, Joshua, sends two spies into the city. And they go into Jericho, and they they, they check out the land. And and the first place they go when they get inside the wall of the city is to the house of this prostitute, Rahab. They go go right to her house. I don't know if they were looking for information and figured she knows everybody, you know, knowing the kind of town it was or, or what. But they showed up at her house. So she's got these spies in her home. And pretty soon the king of Jericho finds out. That there are spies in the land. So messengers come to Rahab's door. And they knock on the door. I'm going to tell you, this is a moment right here in the life of Rahab. She has messengers from the king knocking on her door. And she's got spies from Israel hiding inside of her house. I'm going to tell you, whatever she decides to do in this moment is going to change her story forever. And some of you are are at that place in your life listen, life's a process and and for her this was a process but it came down to a decision and the decision is right here in front of her, am I going to hide these spies am I going to go along with this conspiracy am I going to help the people of Israel fulfill the plan of their God or am I going to turn them over to the king of Jericho it reminds me of a a verse in Hebrews chapter 13. The Bible communicates to us clearly. It says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Can I just tell you that there are days that you don't orchestrate, but the Spirit of God does? There are days when God knocks on your door. The Bible says, Today is the day of salvation. Today is. And that's what this was for Rahab. Now, as we read her story, here's what we learn. This isn't the first time she heard about the people of Israel. In fact, 40 years earlier, when God delivered the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt... He parts the waters of the Red Sea. Over a million people walk across on dry ground. The Egyptian army comes charging after them. And when they get out to the middle of the Red Sea, God closes the water and drowns the entire army. How many of you know that's news that gets around? You know that superpower over there? Yeah, their whole army died yesterday. Yep. And the Bible tells us that the people of Jericho knew about it. And they knew that the Israelites were coming their way. And they were afraid. She had the fear of God around her table as they talked. For some 40 years, no doubt, Rahab had other times in her life where she wondered if what she was doing was enough. If if there was some other way, if there was a better plan for her life. Or if she was just going to stay stuck in a life of prostitution. Stuck living, surrounded by the walls of a city and a society that didn't serve the real God. Or maybe... Maybe there was something more for her. And then, decision time. Decision time comes for Rahab. She goes to the door, and she lies to the spies. Or she lies to the guards. She says, I I haven't seen the men. They're not here. She hides them, and then she cuts a deal with them. She says, "I, I rescued your life, now you rescue mine. And those spies from Israel said, If you'll hang a scarlet rope out the window of your house in the wall of the city, then when we come and attack this city, we'll spare you and your family, everyone that's in the house, but you got to have the scarlet cord hanging out the window. Little did she know that that act of faith was representative of not a scarlet cord, but of the blood of Jesus. It was the bloodline of Jesus that her family would now be a part of. As the Israelites came in and took over Jericho, everything was destroyed. I don't just mean people. I mean cattle. I mean possessions. God said, I don't want anything in Jericho to survive except for that one woman of faith, Rahab. You can save her and her family. And I want to tell you today, here's what I learned as I traced the lines of grace in the genealogy of Jesus. Through the life of Rahab. That no matter what you've done. You can be saved. Oh yeah but you don't know that. no, No matter what you've done. You can be saved. But you have to answer. When salvation knocks on your door. You have to be willing to make that decision. When you come to that crossroads. And you recognize. I can't go forward the way I'm going. I have to make a decision. Today is the day of salvation, let me tell you about, well, I don't even want to take time to talk about this next lady, her name's Tamar, and I want to tell you about some of the men, so I'm going to skip Tamar, but let me just tell you where her story is, it's Genesis 38, now if you're a note taker, write this down, you're going to need to know it, never read Genesis 38 out loud to your children, okay, I'm serious, it's that bad, it's like the worst chapter in the Bible. Tamar was a wicked woman. All right, there's a lot of bad stuff in that story. And I'm not going to read it to you, but here's what I'm going to tell you about it. If you do, if you read it by yourself, not out loud Genesis 38, here's what you're going to learn about that story. There's no sin that is so great that the grace of God is still not greater. There's no sin. The fact that someone like her could be in the lineage of Jesus is absolutely undescribable grace. Let me tell you about three kings quickly. Their names are Rehoboam, Manasseh, and Ammon. The Bible says in Matthew 1 verse 7, it says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. <coughs> now, he wasn't his birth father. In fact, Rehoboam's birth father was a man named Nabat. But, but Rehoboam was a, a close servant of Solomon's. Solomon was his mentor. He's the one that that influenced him the most. And by the way, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus. Incredible wisdom. And yet we see something in the life of Rehoboam that is shameful. He's a a self-centered opportunist. This is a guy who when the opportunity comes for him to usurp himself into the story and to have more authority, he absolutely does. The kingdom of God began to be divided in half. And when an opportunity came, Rehoboam took the ten tribes of Israel from the other two. And he became the king of those tribes. And the first order of business for him was to begin to set up temples of worship of false gods in convenient places. You know why? Because he wanted to make sure that the people that he was now king of didn't have this inner compulsion to go back into worship in Jerusalem. So he just tried to make it convenient for them. Setting up all kinds of temples and idols to false gods. In spite of the incredible wisdom that was available to him, he chose the wrong path. Let me tell you about another king that's listed in verse 10 of Matthew 1. It says, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah. I want to tell you about Manasseh, but before I I do, let me just give you a little insight into his dad, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was an incredible king. I mean, he's one of those guys that demonstrated so much faith in God that it just causes his legacy to stand out above the rest. When Hezekiah was the king, the Assyrian army was, was getting ready to attack They had surrounded them. They were bigger. They were more powerful. They were about to destroy the city. And yet in the midst of that, Hezekiah makes an incredible faith statement in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 7 and 8. He says this to the people. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of the Assyrians and their vast army with him. For there is greater power with us than with him. I love this next verse. It says... With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. Isn't that good? That's the heart of Hezekiah. That's the home that Manasseh was raised in. But Manasseh didn't follow his father's example. In fact, here's a a sad story. In one verse, it describes his whole life. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh. And his people, but they paid no attention. Can I just say to you today that it doesn't matter if you had godly parents or godly grandparents or not? Oh, I mean, sure, it matters, but in terms of your salvation, it doesn't matter. There's some people that didn't have that, and that's the excuse they've been riding all their life. Well, I wasn't raised in church, I didn't know better. Listen, grace is not hereditary. You don't get in because mama prayed. You don't get in because daddy was a deacon. You don't get in because of where you came from or what you came through. You look at this story and you've got a man of God who calls on God and dependency on God in the midst of opposition. And yet his son heard the same God and it just simply says he paid no attention. He didn't listen. Like every one of us, Manasseh had to have his own experience with God. His daddies wouldn't do. The good thing about him is he actually did have an experience with God. And like some of us, it only came after a hard lesson at the school of hard knocks. The Bible says because he was so wicked the Syrians came in while Manasseh was king and they took him personally from his throne and they shackled his wrist with bronze shackles and they led him out of the city by a hook in his nose. And the Bible says at that moment in the story, Second Chronicles 33, 12, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Now, the good news is, Manasseh finally got it right. But can I just challenge you today? Can I appeal to you? Don't wait till it gets that bad. I mean, come on. When you're shackled by the enemy and being drugged out of town with a hook in your nose, you have waited too long. Use wisdom and hear the voice of the Lord. Pay attention if you hear his voice. Don't ignore his voice. But Manasseh finally got it right. And so an even sadder story is that his son could grow up at his table and hear the stories about his family, how God had spared his grandfather Hezekiah, how God had rescued his dad Manasseh from the enemy who had taken him captive. And and yet Ammon grows up in this environment and the Bible says this, just, just two verses, that describe his life for us. 2 Chronicles 33. Verse 23 and 24. But unlike his father. Manasseh. He did not humble himself. Before the Lord. Ammon. Increased his guilt. Next verse tells how it all ended. Ammon's officials conspired against him. And assassinated him. In his palace. Can I tell you. There are Many godly parents who tried to do everything right, who have sons and daughters that just paid no attention when God spoke to their heart. Stories like this ought to sober our our hearts as parents. They ought to push us back to our knees in prayer that every day, I don't just want my girls to know that I love Jesus, I want them to have a personal relationship with Him. I want them to hear Him call their name in the night just like Samuel did as a boy. It ought to make us aware of the reality that grace, grace is not hereditary. You don't get born into this. You don't get born into the kingdom of God. In the same way that none of us were born into Jesus' physical bloodline, none of us are born into His heavenly bloodline either. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. When I look at these men, in spite of the great influences that they had in their life, it reminds me how critically important it is That we have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 13. That we are children born not of natural descent. Nor of human decision. Or of a husband's will. But born of God. That's how you become a part of the family of God. It's personal. It's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've told you about four women and three kings. But let me me quickly just tell you about two men i got to mention these guys. Their names are Hezron and Ram. And and you find them in the genealogy in in verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Now, honestly, it just wouldn't be right if I preached Matthew chapter 1 and talked about the genealogy and didn't mention these two guys. I mean, if you, if you know your Bible like I do, and you're familiar with the Old Testament, then when you see these names on the page, Hezron and Ram, I mean, immediately, you know, it, it conjures a thought, right? I mean, we're like, oh man, yeah, Hezron and Ram, I mean, right? You know what the thought is, at least for me, the thought is, who in the world are Hezron and Ram, right? I mean, does anybody know? You don't know, I don't know. This is the reality. They're in the genealogy of Jesus. But the truth is, we don't have a clue about these guys. I don't know if they were godly men. I don't know if they were men of integrity. I don't know if they were evil men. What I know is this. When Matthew wanted to prove the authenticity and the credibility of Jesus as the Messiah, as the coming king. Two names that got written down in the annals are Hezron And Ram and here's why I bring those two up because I believe that you might even be here today and you feel like a Hezron and a Ram in the story you feel like when it comes to the significance I'm I'm never going to be the headline. I'm always going to be a byline I'm always going to be a footnote. I don't have the talents. I don't have the credibility I don't have the history or the experience I don't have all the things that all the other people have call me Hezron call me Ram I don't know what my point in the story is, but can I encourage you today? Even if you feel like a byline. If you're a byline in the bloodline of redemption. Your life is going to matter for eternity. Hear me today. God has an eternal purpose for your life. Don't allow other people's estimation of you. Or your own estimation of yourself. To be the thing that determines your impact for the kingdom of God. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. When it's all been told. Here they are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what the, the lie is that I think Satan often tells us? The lie is you don't belong in this family. You don't belong in this family. You sin too much. You made too many mistakes. You've run too long. It's too late to come back. You're not like these other people. Even, even if you did try to fit in, you wouldn't fit in. They wouldn't accept you. Maybe you feel like a, a, a Rahab on the, on the outskirts. You know I mean? You, you, might, you might pray that God would save you in a crisis moment, but you really don't have any anticipation that you're going to actually become a part of the family of God, that he would actually write you in to the story. You don't belong. That's what the enemy says. Or, or maybe maybe you're more like Ruth. It, it, you don't belong because you don't, you don't sense the need to belong. The reality is you're a good person. Ethics, they're up there. Morality, it's up there. You're a good person and, and you would just sense that, hey, I don't, I don't really need. I don't need all this. I don't need to be a part of this family. I'm going to tell you again. Morality and ethics will take you a long way, but they will not take you to heaven. It will not get you. As far as you need to go. And good or not good, there's a law that says the wages of sin is death. You may be the best saint among us, but you've sinned. And I've sinned. And we know it. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's death. You need to belong. Maybe you are like these kings, godly influences, people that have told you right from wrong. You should know better. You do know better. But knowing and doing are two different things. And the enemy would love to just continue to propagate that lie today in your heart that says, you don't don't belong. You had your chance. You missed it. You've blown it. Can I tell you today, if this genealogy of grace tells me anything, it communicates to me that if Jesus... Was willing to be born in the flesh into this family. If he was allowed to be, if he allowed himself to be a part of this bloodline, I'm guaranteeing you today, he is not ashamed to call you brother. He's not ashamed to call you sister. He's not ashamed to say, hey, welcome home. You can be a part of the family too. That's the the grace of God today for each and every one of us. That His love, it extends to us. That He's not ashamed to say to you today, Welcome home. Welcome home for Christmas. You can be a part of this family. Because this is not a family of perfect people. It's a family of forgiven people. The church is not full of of saints. We're we're full of saints to be. We're a work in progress. Amen? Amen? When I trace the genealogy of Jesus... I trace grace. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I don't have skeletons in my closet. I am the skeleton in my family closet. We don't have a black sheep. Like, I am the black sheep. Maybe that's you and you just say, you know what? I've been hearing those lies from the enemy that I don't belong in God's family. I want to tell you today, it doesn't matter how dark your past is. doesn't matter how messed up your home is. They're not enough to keep you out of the genealogy of grace. If you repent of your sin and you believe the gospel, your name is written down. Not, not in the biological record of his family, but in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name is written down in the spiritual family in heaven's record book. They'll look down and I don't know what the subline will be. I don't know what the backstory is. But your name will be there. And that's all that matters. I want to pray for you today. I want to ask you to bow your head with me all over this room. And just take a moment as I pray this prayer to lean in with your heart to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you today. As I've covered a multitude of people's stories Perhaps I've said some things that ring true with your own. I want to assure you today that the heart of God is to welcome you into His forever family. And some of you, you come to these moments and the Holy Spirit tugs at your heart. You're afraid to respond. You're afraid to... Ask anyone to pray for you or to raise your hand because the reality is you're not new. This is not your first time. The truth is the enemy's convinced you of these lies for years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe more. Over and over again, he's lied to you and he said, you don't belong in this family. And you're ashamed today to admit that you have believed that lie. I'm going to tell you today. It's not true. God has proven in the first page of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that this is a lineage of grace and your name can be written into it. Father, today I pray right now for everyone here whose heads are bowed, eyes are closed, God, those that know you and have walked with you for years and have struggled with their place in the family of God. And for those, God, that maybe don't know you, they don't have a relationship with you, and maybe, truth be told, they wouldn't even know where to begin. But yet today, just like Rahab did, they sense you're knocking at the door. And there's enough self-awareness to realize that I'm at a crossroads. And today... God, today by your spirit, you're calling them to hitch their hopes on the God of Israel, on Jesus the Messiah. Father, I pray today for those individuals who you're speaking to right now. God, confirm your word, confirm your love. Lord, penetrate their hearts right now as only you can do by your Holy Spirit. Call them home. Call them back to the family that you intended for them. If that's you today, I want to just encourage you right now while your head's bowed, your eyes are closed, just pray a prayer of surrender to God. You don't need complicated words just from your heart. That's all he wants, your heart. Right now, just in your own words, "God, God, I'm willing to trust you. Lord, I trust what you say about me. You love me. You're for me. You want to call me home. God, I believe that. And I receive it today in the name of Jesus. I receive it today. And I believe just like for Ruth, just like for Rahab, God, I believe my life is going to be forever changed because of a moment, this moment, today, I choose, I choose your word about me, God. It's greater than my past. It's greater than my family. I choose you, Jesus.